Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we will be discussing Tootsie. It's 6.15 in the morning and my clock's going beep, beep, beep. Shoes on, I'm dressed, no rest, cause I never really got to sleep. First, how are we doing? As always, I hope this episode finds you well. I want to begin this episode with another correction. I used female pronouns when referencing the book writer of Once and uh, Walsh. I did that last week. I want to take a moment this week to correct that mistake and apologize. That's the kind of mistake that could easily be avoided with what I like to call research. So I apologize for that. It's a mistake that I do not wish to repeat. And I I can assure you that I will do my best to not do that in the future. That is this week's correction. Hopefully, I don't have to come back next week and provide another correction because it is quite frustrating. (laughs) I do also want to spend this opening segment talking about a strange new project that was announced. This is a musical adaptation of a mobile game. The game is Final Fantasy Brave Exvius, and again, this is being turned into a stage musical. It's a 2016 mobile game, I should say, and the musical is going to be presented at Tokyo's Tenozu Ginga Theater and Kobe's AIA 2.5 Theater throughout March 2020. Advanced tickets will be sold via an in-game lottery I wrote that down because I find that to be quite interesting, as we all know. There are many online lotteries for Broadway shows and other productions in America. I like the idea of using the game that the show is based on to sell tickets. That seems like a very reasonable, sensible, logical idea. The writer of this musical, the book writer essentially, is Fumiya Matsuzaki, who previously wrote a musical adaptation of the game Super, and I'm going to have trouble with this, so bear with me, Super Danganronpa 2. I believe I'm trying my best there. More musicals based on video games is what I say. I'm very intrigued by this project. Here is a plot summary of the Final Fantasy Brave Exvius game from Wikipedia. Benny, could we get a bit of Final Fantasy Brave Exvius music underneath this? Ah, yes, perfect, all right. So here is the story behind this game that is being turned into a musical. The story takes place in Lapis, a world where magical crystals exist alongside visions, which are physical manifestations of people's thoughts and feelings. The story focuses on Rain, a young knight from the kingdom of Grand Shelt, who, though a stalwart knight in his own right, feels overshadowed by his father, Sir Regan. Rain and his childhood friend Laswell are traveling on their airship when they encounter Fina, a young woman trapped in a crystal who begs assistance from them. Fina leads them to the Earth Shrine where the Earth Crystal is under attack by the Veritas of the Dark, who claims to be one of the sworn Six of Palladia. 
While the Dark Lord's real motive remains unknown, it seems that he wants to end the world by destroying all crystals. Though Rain and Laswell have never heard of either Veritas or his organization, he proves to be a formidable foe destroying the Earth Crystal despite their opposition. With the help of Fina, a healer and archer who has lost her memory, the two set out to track down Veritas and stop his rampage. And if you think this sounds convoluted or silly, try sifting through the Les Miserables plot again. <laughs> Let's get the show facts. Show me the show facts regarding Tootsie. Tootsie was a 2019 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on March 29th, 2019 at the Marquee Theatre and is currently running, having logged 197 performances as of October 13th, 2019. The book of the musical was written by Robert Horn. The based on credits are a tad murky here, as the IBDB cites the original source as a story by Don McGuire and Larry Gelbart, whereas Wikipedia states Gelbart's play, which is known as What I I lied to you, served as the origin for the property. The play was adapted into the 1982 Columbia Pictures film, which starred Dustin Hoffman and was written by Gelbert, Murray Schiskel, Barry Levinson, and Elaine May, though Levinson and May are not officially credited. Music and lyrics were by David Yazbek, who is no stranger to the film-to-stage musical adaptation, having previously written the scores for The Band's Visit, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and The Full Monty. The director of the original Tootsie production was slash is Scott Ellis. The musical director was slash is, I'm going to stop doing that right now, Andrea Grody, the choreographer, Dennis Jones, the scenic design, David Rockwell, lighting design by Donald Holder, sound design by Brian Ronan, costume design by William Ivy Long, and the original Broadway cast includes Santino Fontana, John Bellman, Lily Cooper, Andy, and I again, I, I apologize, Andy, in advance. Your name is quite tough, and I'm going to do my best here. Andy Groutolution. Andy Groutolution. That is what I am going to throw out there. That is what I am throwing into the forum, and I'm sure that it is wrong, and so I apologize again. The cast also includes Julie Halston, Michael McGrath, Reg Rogers, and Sarah Stiles. I'm not sure if that's Reg Rogers or Reg Rogers. Look, I'm, I'm just one musical man. I'm trying my best. What do you want me to do? Apologize again? Okay, I'm sorry. Tony nods. Let's begin with the Tony Awards that Tootsie took home at the end of this past year's Tony's ceremony. It won Best Book of a Musical, Robert Horn, and it won Best Actor in a Musical, Santino Fontana, and it was additionally nominated for Best Musical, of course, Best Original Score, David Yazbek, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Lily Cooper, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Andy Grout... Oh, I can't even remember what I did the first time. Andy Grautischlin. Oh, goodness gracious. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Sarah Stiles. Best Choreography, Dennis Jones. Best Direction of a Musical, Scott Ellis. Best Orchestration, Simon Hale. And Best Costume Design, William Ivy Long. So in total, 11 nominations and two awards at the end of the night. Surprisingly, Wikipedia provides little to no context regarding the show's plot beyond a basic logline and the original Broadway cast album, which I bought through the iTunes store thanks to your monthly contributions, Patreon donors, doesn't include digital liner notes. Are those are those on the way out? Baby wants his candy, and by candy, he means his digital liner notes. Wham! 
So considering we have so little to go on in terms of reference points, I'll do my best to relay what I gleaned from the album. Tootsie is all about Michael Dorsey, a straight, white, cis man who longs to break into the upper echelons of Broadway musical theater, as do we all. No one can deny Michael has the talent to back up his ambitions, but something is standing in the way of his achieving success. His fucking personality! Michael is a stuck-up, loudmouth, bloviating jagoff, and no one in New York City, as his agent flatly reports, will hire him! This being a musical comedy, Michael chooses to forego options like therapy, or moving to another city, or therapy, or considering a new career path, or therapy. Instead, he dresses up as a woman adopts the name Dorothy Michaels, and lands a plum role in a musical adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, which is known as Juliet's Curse. This is the biggest divergence from the plot of the original film, which saw Michael getting cast on a daytime soap opera. As the charming and plain-spoken Dorothy, Michael is able to influence and improve almost every element of the troubled production, from the dialogue to the costumes and sets. The book writers even go so far as to change the show's title from Juliet's Curse to Juliet's Nurse, because Michael has been cast as Juliet's Nurse, you see. Yes, everyone is delighted by Dorothy's performance and creative contributions. Well, almost everyone. The show's director, Ron Carlyle, resents being upstaged, and Michael's roommate Jeff finds the whole scheme to be fairly repellent, but Michael cares not when it comes to the haters. He's unstoppable as Dorothy, baby. Ah, but what's this? Love? Huh? Love makes story more complicated? Oh, no. Oh, yes. Michael finds that he has fallen for his co-star, Julie, a woman who previously gave up on romantic dreams so she could honor her artistic dreams. In a moment of celebration regarding the success of Juliet's nurse, Michael, as Dorothy, kisses Julie. Très compliqué! Meanwhile, another member of the Juliet cast, Max Van Horn, finds that he's in love with Dorothy. Quel wacké! I'm not exactly sure how everything works out, but Michael does reveal his true identity to Julie before asking for a second chance. Does he deserve a second chance? No, absolutely not, but I'm pretty sure he gets one, which seems unreasonable and unrealistic even for a musical comedy. At this point, I want to turn things over to another person entirely. I want to read in full a piece that was written for the American Theatre blog. So this is a May 7th, 2019 American Theatre piece, and the headline, the title of this piece, I should say, is The Gender Problem, Tootsie Can't Dress Up, by Christian Lewis. This is written by Christian Lewis, and I'm going to read this piece in full because it says everything that came to mind when I was listening to this show, and when I when I sit alone and I contemplate this show, uh, Christian could put it, can put it, has put it, better than I ever could. So we're going to turn this over to Christian now. This is The Gender Problem, Tootsie Can't Dress Up. Oh, and I'm sorry, I want to I, I want to actually lead with Christian Lewis's bio, his online bio. Christian Lewis is a queer theater critic and freelance theater journalist with bylines in American theater, HuffPost, Broadway World, Exant, Medium, and Out. So now that we have that, once again, I throw it over to Christian Lewis. When David Yazbek and Robert Horn's new musical Tootsie opened on Broadway a few weeks ago to mostly rave reviews, all written by cisgender critics, New York Magazine's Sarah Holdren was one of the only critics to call out the dated gender politics of the show based on the 1982 film. I was shocked, however, that none of the critics noticed the larger problem, the show's entire premise, is transphobic. Although there are no trans characters in the musical, trans people are the butt of every joke, a silent specter of mockery as the whole musical revolves around a 
never-ending man-in-a-dress gag, a trope that's rooted in trans misogyny, hatred of trans women. How can a show without any trans characters be transphobic? As trans theater maker Bryn Solomon writes, quote, Just as a celebration of German culture can still be anti-Semitic, even if it never mentions Jews, and a boss who calls his secretary sweetie can still be sexist, even if he never explicitly tells women to die, the core conceit of Tootsie's plot strengthens tropes that harm trans women in pervasive, implicit ways. Quote, While the new musical has some merits, which certainly account for its 11 Tony nominations, that is not what I want to focus on here. It is time for us to stop praising Tootsie and start recognizing its problems. Although Tootsie is unwilling to have meaningful discussions about drag and gender, that doesn't mean we can't. Drag is not inherently transphobic, but the drag in Tootsie absolutely is. The point of drag is to queer gender and prove how socially constructed it is to show that gender is a performance. Tootsie misappropriates drag in ways that enforce ideas about binary gender by making jokes out of the dichotomy between Michael, the straight cisgender protagonist, and his drag persona, Dorothy. This frequently takes the form of crude and transphobic bodily humor about genitals or gags about bras, wigs, and heels, and how ridiculous it is that Michael would wear them. The musical treats the entire concept of drag and of gender as nothing but a joke. Tootsie is by no means the first musical to play with the possibilities of drag. Kinky Boots, La Cage au Full, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Rent, and this season's underappreciated Head Over Heels all use drag in both serious and comedic ways to explore queer identity, marginalization, and the power of performance. Unlike the lead in Tootsie, the characters who do drag in those shows don't constantly make jokes about their genitals, lie about their gender, or use use drag to get ahead, steal a job from a woman, and manipulate those around them. Instead, all of those musicals have drag performers fighting to perform, to be listened to, and to be taken seriously on their own terms. Lola, Zaza, the queens of Priscilla, Cleophila, and Angel are marginalized because of their queer identities and their choice to do drag, all of which reflects reality. In Tootsie, on the other hand, when Michael chooses to do drag to get a role, he gets hired, is universally beloved, and is given total artistic control over the show. The notion that Michael would get cast more easily and have more creative power as a woman than as a man isn't just implausible, it's also damaging. A further erasure of actual cis and trans women's experience. What's more, since Michael is not openly a drag queen, but is fully pretending to be a woman and getting away with it, the show subtly reinforces the transphobic claim that trans people are liars, pretenders, or fakers. Through all of this, there is never a discussion of Michael's gender in relationship to his drag, although there certainly could have been. Head Over Heels ends with a character who has done drag throughout, saying he wants to keep his drag persona around, that she is part of him now. In a slightly similar vein, Michael says, I am Dorothy, Dorothy is me, but only as a justification for his ruse. He never entertains the idea that he might continue to do drag in less problematic ways, ideally, or that maybe this experience has caused him to reconsider his own gender identity. Could Michael be a trans lesbian, or maybe a genderqueer pansexual? Perhaps, but this version of Tootsie makes no effort to explore these possibilities or talk about gender identity at all. Instead, Michael ends the show by bizarrely telling his love interest, Julie, I was a better man with you as a woman than I ever was with a woman as a man. I just have to learn how to do it all without the dress. 
why without the dress? To make matters worse, the creative team, which is almost entirely male and is exclusively cis, seems to think they can diffuse the show's cis sexism by dropping some self-aware critiques into the show. But even these are done poorly, since the majority of the feminist commentary comes from male characters. And when Michael's agent tells him, be a he, be a she, be a they, use whatever bathroom you want, and don't let anybody tell you you can't, it comes off as pandering, and can't erase the transphobic binary that is the source of most of the musical's humor. These moments of wokeness are clearly performative. A glance through Robert Horn's script shows him referring to Michael slash Dorothy with inconsistent pronouns. The writers of Tootsie clearly have a very limited, binary understanding of gender, and rather than work to expand it, they seem to have gone out of their way not only to avoid addressing it, but instead to make fun of it. The creators aren't the only ones who seem to think they've solved the show's gender problems. Lead actor Santino Fontana, who in a Playbill interview and a New York Times feature, praised the musical's timely discussion of gender inequality and feminist messaging, echoes his character's claims that, quote, "...what Dorothy is doing is important, quote. Both actor and character are tragically off-base, bordering on clueless." But the issues don't stop here, and Fontana isn't the only person on the Tootsie team trying to claim the musical is progressive. The problematic merchandise for the show features appropriative Friend of Dorothy slogans, a gay solidarity reference wholly unjustified for a show portraying exclusively straight relationships, and originally included tote bags and shirts with a quote from Michael, being a woman is no job for a man. Clearly meant as a feminist manifesto for the musical, it comes off instead as an alarm alarmingly transphobic mantra. The merchandise was silently pulled after an uproar from trans people on Twitter, but the production representatives didn't publicly admit guilt or apologize, and the offensive line still remains in the show. During intermission at the performance of Tootsie I attended, there was a very long line for the women's restroom and no line for the men's restroom. A man walking out of the men's room joked, Ladies, just use the men's room. Do whatever you want. It's 2019, right? He chuckled as if gender-inclusive bathrooms are just a joke, but the laugh was on him. To his surprise, several women took his advice, left their line, and went to the men's room. He walked away, shaking his head. This moment feels like a perfect metaphor for the show itself. Tootsie engages with gender only in superficial ways, either to score points for being feminist or more frequently simply to make another transphobic dick joke. To quote Michael's unrealistically woke roommate Jeff, quote, There is so much wrong with this! Critics, Tony voters, audiences, we as a community deserve and should demand better from Broadway. And again, that piece, which was written by Christian Lewis, can be found on the American Theater site. It's from May 7th, 2019, and the headline, when you're Googling that, if you want to share that with people, that headline again is, The Gender Problem, Tootsie Can't Dress Up. Thank you very much, Christian Lewis. I love that piece. It says so much. It says so much that needs to be said about this show, and I'm very glad that we could include it here and continue to share these points, share these, these perspectives, these very sound perspectives, I should say. Now, for the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 2019 original Broadway cast album. Again, thank you very much, monthly Patreon donors, for helping me to purchase that. And I also listened, uh, I watched, I should say, the 2019 Tony Awards performance of the song Unstoppable, which serves as the Act 1 finale for Tootsie. While re-watching this performance, I couldn't help but pick up on the consistently literal bits of staging and choreography Santino Fontana is made to deliver. He talks about flying like a bird while flapping his 
his arms, drops to his knees, while describing the act of dropping to his knees, and pantomimes the jiggling of a doorknob while talking about a locked door. Now that I think about it, this is the kind of shit that, like, the radio DJ who served as my high school's choreographer, that it, this is that kind of shit. No one likes literal choreography or staging. It's very stiff and silly. You're, you're basically saying to the audience, you're dumb, so let's just spell this out for you. You're dumb. Fontana is also all arms during this performance, punching the air and flailing about as if he's afraid we might look away for even a second. Maybe he's trying to stand apart from his comparatively flat character from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's unclear and definitely not charming. The votes were already in Fontana. Relax a little bit. The Tootsie costumes on display during this performance bring to mind the 2009 adaptation of 9 to 5. Everyone is drenched in this sort of Nickelodeon neon aesthetic, and the cityscape set behind them is like an animation cell ripped out of Hey Arnold. I'm probably being too cynical or critical here, but overall these designs, these sets, these costumes, they seem strategic and sweaty, as if they're meant to distract us from the show's obvious limitations. Don't think about the gender politics. This is a goofy comedy. Look at the overblown sets and pop art costumes. This isn't the real world. How can anyone possibly take this seriously? I also need to talk about the fake show posters that are brought on stage during the finale. These things are large, cumbersome, seemingly quite expensive, and Boy, oh boy, are they not funny. Here are the show titles for these fake posters. Are you ready? We have Stage Mom, which is an obvious parody of Gypsy. We have Lay Miz, that's L-E-S space M-Z period, Lay Miz. I'm sure you can figure out what that, what that, sh what that's trying to reference. I think you can figure that out. Cleopatra is a, is the third poster, and that's, I don't know, maybe a parody of Aida? It's unclear. And then the final one, which is the biggest groaner of them all, is Windy City the Musical. I mean, give me a fucking break with this obvious nonsense. These are the ideas they went with at the end of the day? Come on already, I know you have to appeal to a wide audience, but this shit is utterly toothless. And again, what's the joke with the Cleopatra poster? Swap out that meaningless gag for a wicked parody, hello? Have the fake show be called, I don't know, Big Ol' Witch or something. I I would try harder for you, but I'm not getting paid to come up with this stuff. That's that's your fucking job. That was your job. If I was, if I had that job, I would try harder. You should try harder. So good as to recall, last week I bemoaned the state of the overture. Well, I don't suppose I was bemoaning the state of it so much as, well, I guess I was complaining pretty broadly about it, uh, but mainly I was saying that I prefer my overtures to clock in at a certain length. 90 seconds or less, too short. Four minutes or more, uh, too long. Like two and a half to three and a half minutes? Just right, my friend. The Tootsie Overture feels properly considered, not at all like a toss-off. Am I wrong in thinking it starts off strangely eerie, though? With the church bells and portentous backing? It's not straight-up gothic, but it does strike an unintentionally dramatic note. The rest of it is more appropriately scrappy and rascally, if also a tad anonymous when placed within the rest of Yazbek's canon. And by that, I 
mean it could easily serve as an overture for a number of his other works, especially The Full Monty or Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Let's all stop the rehearsal again because because Mitchell has another compelling question. It's Michael Dorsey. And would my character say the city is all heart? He's a traumatized war vet evicted from his rent-controlled apartment during the sewage-baked heat of summer. All heart? I don't think so. Where in the history of the printed libretto does it say any of that? It's the backstory I gave him. Backstory. He, he doesn't even have a name. He's guy who walks by. My character deserves his truth. I am just saying what every actor on this stage is thinking. Lovey, this is a Ron Carlyle show. My vision, me creating a, a living aggregate out of the imagination of nothing. You want out? You're out. Of the whole song? Of the, <laughs> of the whole show. Of any show I ever do in the pantheon of ever. And then even after that, after that. This opening number is benign and dishonest, directed by an inept derivative hack. And this musical... Socks! This is the tale of Michael Dorsey. He is the center of the plot. Is he an actor? Yes, of course he is. Is he successful? Yes, of course he's not. Tootsie establishes a meta-theatrical tone via its opening number, which is referred to as opening number on the track list, with the cast commenting on and openly referring to Michael Dorsey as the focal point of the plot, the lead character of the plot. They are explicitly making this clear to you. Yazbek is pretty damn aggressive, actually, in defining this arch, self-aware sensibility, but once the number comes to an end, he completely discards it. A very strange decision, if you ask me. I would think it'd be fairly easy to establish Michael's personal personality and problems without going this far down the satirical rabbit hole, especially if it means digging yourself out of it moments later. Reg Rogers, or Reg Rogers, I'm going to have to make a decision. You know what? I'm going to go with Reg. Reggie. It's probably short for Reggie, right? Reginald? Let's go with that. Reg Rogers is a huge highlight here as director Ron Carlyle. I cannot get enough of his ragged, almost Pacino-like displays of blistering rage. It's simultaneously so gonzo and so believable. It's so studied is what it is. He's clearly put a lot of thought into how each of his lines can be uniquely delivered, and I admire that dedication to avoiding one note tomfoolery. I was completely in Carlisle's pocket from word one and always up for seeing what he would do next. On a sour note, I do think this opening number goes out of its way, goes way too far, I should say, in establishing Michael as a cluelessly egotistical prig. It's one thing for him to be an egotist and blowhard, but why would any human being complain that the show around him isn't adhering to a devised character history only he knows about? That's not arrogance, that's insanity. It's incredibly unbelievable on the page, and Fontana's delivery does nothing to help me understand where this guy could possibly be coming from. 
Wouldn't there be just as much comedic opportunity in having Michael criticize, say, the performances of his fellow castmates or the decisions of the director? There are a hundred more realistic choices at our disposal. That's all I'm saying. Choices that would paint Michael as a believable twat rather than a complete lunatic. I know what's gonna happen. I'll try to go to bed with fear of failure flapping like a fruit bat in my head. I'll sleep for half an hour. The clock will ring at six. I'll wake up in the shower with a stomach full of bricks so I won't have any breakfast, maybe just a little tea. Like when you have to go and get a colonoscopy, which incidentally isn't half as disconcerting or upsetting as going for a part you know there's no way that you're getting. But anyway, I'm heading downtown for the audition where everything I'm dreading will be coming to fruition. And here's what's gonna happen. I'll walk in weak with hunger and there's a dozen girls who look like me but ten years younger. I'll go into the bathroom and I'll try to vocalize and I'll be singing minga 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 but I'll be hearing Sandy suck. She really sucks. She really, really, really blows. And she's old and she's lame and then someone calls my name and here's what happens. I'll walk into the room. The gross fluorescent lighting is inviting as a tomb and everybody smiles. They'll say it's good to see ya but all I'll see is judges and they'll all look like Skellia. And then a little banter as they look me up and down and somewhere through the fog of insecurity and hate I'll try to convince them that I'm charming and to a lifetime of waiting tables and debilitating self-loathing. I decided to skip over Michael's first big solo, What Do You Do?, because it's it's not especially interesting. Shocker, I'm not engaged by the whiny musical stylings of a guy who probably spends his nights on Twitter harassing social justice warriors, quote-unquote. You just know Michael's Twitter avi is a gray silhouette. A gray silhouette wearing a fedora seems reasonable. Instead, we have jumped to What's Gonna Happen. You just heard a bit of that a moment ago. It's a solo that belongs to Sandy. Now, you may be wondering, who the hell is Sandy? You didn't mention her during the plot summary. True. It's probably because I have no clue as to how she fits into the plot, beyond being Michael and Jeff's friend. Like Michael, Sandy is a struggling actor, a plight she sings about here. What's Gonna Happen is memorably kinetic and stuffed to the brim with clever lyricism, very much in the mold of Jason Robert Brown's audition sequence from the last five years, or Jason Robert Brown's Just One Step from Songs for a New World. What about Sondheim's Getting Married Today from Company? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. If it's a song in which a woman expresses her anxiety and feelings of desperation, I am all about it. Men like Michael Dorsey believe they have it tough while burning every bridge they can. I don't feel sorry for them. But women like Sandy are trying their damnedest to be professional and get ahead, and almost no one is looking out for their best interest. Real comedy can be mined from the frustration that comes with this knowledge, and Yazbek mines it here with aplomb. There is a reprise of what's going to happen further down the line, but I quickly decided I did not need that in my life. Not necessarily. Diminishing returns, Yazbek. No, when you're ahead. Imagine that you are the flower and I am the dirt My world spins around you Whenever you fall, I'm the one who gets hurt I give you all I have Give me one thing in return Help me help you to help me To help you to help me to help you to learn that I won't let you down I'll give you my heart and soul I'll be here 
I won't let you down. That's good. Thank you. Because you believe in me. Because you're the one who can see. I'm here and alive. I won't let you down. I'm fairly certain I won't let you down is the song Michael performs as Dorothy in order to land himself a role in Juliet's Curse. It's a very good showcase for Santino Fontana's vocal chops, to the point where I assume the chops are what secured him the Best Actor in a Musical award. It's certainly not his characterization of Michael, which is heavy-handed when it's not totally unnerving, or his characterization of Dorothy, which is so hammy, you have to wonder why no one's calling it out. I did get some amusement out of Dorothy telling the pianist to pick up the tempo, like a handful of peanuts worth of amusement. It kept me going, but it didn't really fill me up, you know? Accentuated movement, people! Bounce, 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 bounce! Five, six, seven, eight! Boss it, boss it! Boss it, boss it! Brain freeze! The floor is lava! It's hot, 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 hot! It's hot, 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 hot! Happy bunny, funny bunny, frightened bunny! In the hole! Where's the bunny? Where's the bunny? He's got a fidget spinner! Go! just popping in to remind everyone that I like Reg Rogers as Ron Carlyle, especially when he says, where's the bunny? He's got a fidget spinner. Go! Quite funny, even if that joke is doomed to baffle audiences in the long run. I actually don't see this show having too much of a shelf life beyond maybe like its initial tour coming out of Broadway. I, I don't necessarily see this being done a lot. P.S. Now that I think about it, Tootsie has a very 60s, 70s vibe, despite being set in the present day. The score has a 60s, 70s vibe, I should say. Would Tootsie's plot be more digestible if it were set in the 60s or 70s? I'm certain the creative team considered this option, but it would not have prevented discerning audiences from asking relevant questions. If anything, making Tootsie a period piece would read as an obvious diversion or tap dance. You can't blame the characters for not having a better understanding of gender dynamics. The 60s were a different time! At least by setting it in the present, the show can make some clear, if slight, stabs at today's conversations. Played carousel on the road for the winter. From April to June, I toured cabaret. Then Mother Courage in stock in New England all summer. And John tried to call almost every day. 
He told me he wanted some kids and a wife And that's when I realized this is my life I made my choice, but I never expressed it And when I got home, can you guess? Yeah, I guessed it John was gone Everything on the left of the closet was gone His electric guitar and his amp and his car were gone Just poof There I was standing under a roof alone And yes, my heart was almost broken But I'd made my choice and I'd make it You have to wonder what Yazbek and book writer Robert Horn actually think about Tootsie as source material. Michael never really gets to present a meaningful inner life. He's an absolute Ebenezer Scrooge buffoon who learns how to play nice and be a nice person. That's his arc from start to finish. Where does his anger come from? Why is he so fixated on achieving some vague level of success? Musically, it's completely unclear. The creative team is obviously much more interested in Julie, as demonstrated by the song There Was John. It's a lovely, warm tapestry that tells us everything we need to know about why she became an actor in the first place and how she keeps going in the face of adversity. This is a woman who has had to make a lot of tough choices, but those choices have gotten her this far, and she wouldn't change the past even if she could. This inspires Michael, but I could care less about what inspires Michael. What I do care about is how Yazbek has created a sort of instrumental theme for Julie, with this song, and it continues past this song. It's a gauzy 1970s Burt Bacharach lounge lizard soundscape, and this can be heard not only in There Was John, but Julie's half of Who Are You, a duet we'll be covering in mere moments. Who are you? I said that in a very strange way. No one else in Tootsie can say they have a distinct instrumental theme, can they? I think not. This proves to me, at least, that Yazbek values Julie above all else, as does the fact that after a while, Michael stops singing. He basically stops singing. <laughs> she won't take direction, she's changing the play. She's like an infection that won't go away. She just wants to fight me, she does it despite me. I hate what she's doing. It's very dramatic, I'm really upset. It's bringing up memories I need to forget. She's stealing my girl, she's stealing my show, and I'm ready to blow on because of that cow. God damn it, she's gotta stop doing what she's doing now. Okay, Max, new clothes, new lines, you got this. If you take her, you had better take care of her. I will devote my life to her happiness. I love her. Mean it! I will devote my life to her happiness. I love I her. I don't believe I will you. devote my life to her happiness. I love her! Well done, Max. Hey, I like what she's doing. She's got so much heart. She's so friggin' sexy and so friggin' smart. She's made me an actor. She's built like a tractor. I like what she's doing. I like what 
what she's doing is arguably worth your time, if only for the reappearance of, you guessed it, Reg Rogers as Ron Carlisle. He's my MVP, what can I say? But the number also brings up a number of questions. Questions I'm sure no one wants me asking. It's a popcorn show, Jonathan. Turn off your brain. Yes, but would anyone actually allow Dorothy to take this much control of a show? Aren't there, like, union rules about people horning in on the responsibilities of others, namely the director and the production designers especially? Shut the fuck up, Jonathan. Shut the fuck up. It's a popcorn show. Turn off your fucking brain or we'll turn it off for you. Yikes. All right, fine. Fine. I said fine. Jesus, for God's sake, put down the knife. This is a different story. Something completely strange. What the hell am I doing? Who with someone somebody I can talk to like someone I've always known where on earth were you hiding who are you that shift into Bacharach territory am I right what a nice treat I love me some Burt Bacharach and if you need more of him in your life I highly recommend you track down Painted from Memory, the album he recorded with Elvis Costello. Talk about a delight. But back to Tootsie. We're talking about Who Are You, that duet. Yes, we're here now. Sure, this is, at the end of the day, Diet Bacharach, imitation store brand, lower shelf Bacharach, if you will, but it's still fizzy and tasty. Those horns make me think of dreamsicle oranges, velvety vanillas, and a robin's egg blue, I do say. Am I paying attention to the lyrics? No, I'm thinking about colors. <laughs> Am I paying attention to Michael? I just growing affection for Julie? No, I'm thinking about colors. Turn up those soft horns, baby. I want to see you think about dreamsicles. <laughs> Starting to sound like a gold prospector. Michael Dorsey, the man with the scheme and the master plan. Couldn't beg, buy, or borrow his dream, but now Dorothy can. Cause she's got me flying like a bird. So how to describe it? Only one word. Unstoppable Stand aside cause that girl's on a roll She's unstoppable Admiration, respect and control She's unstoppable Half cocked and down on my knees Doors locked but suddenly she's Right there beside me got control we're getting big we took the chance we took this town told you before show me the door i'll kick it down when i put on the wig and the dress i'm on disturbs me about Unstoppable is how it seems to be celebrating and even reveling in Michael's delusions. Of course we're supposed to understand that Michael is only digging a deeper hole for himself by doubling down on Dorothy. Talk about a vocal warm-up. Digging a deeper hole for himself by doubling down on Dorothy. Digging a deeper hole for himself by doubling down on Dorothy. Digging a deeper hole for himself by doubling down on Dorothy. Digging a deeper hole for himself. <laughs> But we're also supposed to be dazzled by the image of Dorothy in her signature red dress. It's a fever 
feverish synthesis of Michael's deranged impulses, and the unintended effect of amping up his glee is that it makes him look positively manic. It's like we're witnessing the final moments of a supervillain's origin story, and it sort of fills me with dread, I'm not gonna lie. If Michael is truly unstoppable, then we're all in for it. Who's more dangerous, Michael Dorsey or Audrey 2? Discuss. At this point, I'd like to interrupt our discussion to point out that I listened to the first and second acts of Tootsie on two subsequent days, and after the first day, I was feeling pretty positive about Tootsie, not gonna lie. We were never going to overcome the show's story problems, but I did enjoy the zippy vim and verve of that first act. To my disappointment, listening to act two wound up being a huge disappointment. The show goes totally limp almost immediately, as if it has no interest in following through on its own setup. It's honestly depressing, and with that statement on the record, I think we can move through the music of act two fairly quickly. Let's go! Not long ago, there was a man, an angry guy, awkwardly aging, committed, but kind of self-destructive, winding his way through life till ambition and circumstance conspired to deliver an opportunity no one except a megalomaniacal actor with nothing to really lose would consider. So then, of course, this guy puts, oh yeah, this guy is you, in case you were wondering, puts on a dress and wig and heels and actually gets the part, and surprisingly, everything goes very well. But then, and how do I say it? You fucked it up. You really fucked it up. You got applause, you got the fame, except it wasn't exactly for you. And now you're in love with a girl who thinks you're somebody that you're not. And in case you forgot, I'll tell you who you really are. You're the guy who fucked it up. You really fucked it up. Listen, Mike, I know and Mr. Opportunity comes tiptoeing and teasing. You're the kind of man who grabs him by the balls. But then when he screams and says, let go of my balls, and you just keep on squeezing, well, that's the time you gotta... I lost my train of thought. Jeff sums it up as a good showcase for, I'm gonna, oh boy, Andy, your name. It's so hard. You know what, I'm gonna spell it out. I'm just gonna spell it out. Jeff sums it up as a good showcase for Andy, G-R-O-T-E-L-U-E-S-C-H-E-N. There you go, Andy. It's a rapid-fire assessment of the first act that is maybe one-third as meta as Yazbek's opening number. Again, what was with the abandonment of that choice, Mr. Yazbek? Call me, we'll order salads at Joshua's Salad Palace. I only take salad meetings at Joshua's Salad Palace these days. I know I've been making a lot of comparisons between songs from Tootsie and the songs from other, I'll say it, better shows, and maybe that's unfair, but Jeff sums it up, it did remind me of Betrayed from the producers. Now, I don't want to shock you, so prepare yourself. Of the two, I think, Betrayed is the better song I know, right? <gasps> Ooh, do you need to sit down? Do you need some water? Glug, glug, glug. I brought this up during my review of Chicago's Oslo production, which is now available via Patreon. Hello. But I never laugh when someone on stage uses the word fuck, and that's meant to serve as some sort of mutated punchline. Saying fuck is not inherently funny, but everyone seems to have been brainwashed into thinking it is. It's not. It really isn't. If we stop laughing whenever lazy writers lob a fuck our way, they'll stop using it to get a rise out of us. Fight it. Be strong. Let's talk about how Act 2 of Tootsie incorporates the word brain into not one, not two, but three of its songs. In Jeff Sums It Up, we get the phrase insane in the membrane, which I'm counting because... 
because I'm counting it, shut up. Then in the song Gone, 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 Julie sings, I woke up this morning out of my brain. And finally, in This Thing, Dopey Hunk Max proclaims, Like that wonderful spike that you drove in my brain. So much brain talk. I don't re- it's just strange. It makes me make sounds. I'm reduced to sounds. <laughs> We're not really going to talk about Gone, 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 by the way, mainly because it's it's nothing more than a loose collection of well-worn cliches. One would think Yazbek would use them as a springboard, maybe take a left turn into deeper territory at some point, but he uh, does not do that. It's almost like the song only exists to pad out the show. Hmm, no, that couldn't possibly be the answer to my query. No, no, never, never. I know I already said we would move through Act 2 pretty quickly, but I can get over how Gone, Gone, Gone and This Thing relies so heavily on like similes. Julie and Max can't stop using them. It's crazy. My love is like this. It's like I'm a this wrapped up in a this. Like, like, like. This, this, this. Like, like, like. Enough already with the dime store Cole Porter comparisons. Speak plainly for once. What did I want? What was my hurry, drawn to the spotlight, but it's not the sun, walking on ice, loaded with worry, is that what you finally get, once your race is run, so talk to me Dorothy, you're smarter than I am, tell me why was I? So hungry before Your waters run deeper Deeper than mine You've given me so much And now I need more The biggest problem I had with Tootsie's second act is how a great number of its songs never managed to go anywhere. They express a particular sentiment at the outset and proceed to find a million ways to restate that sentiment. There are no curves in the road, no hills or valleys. The characters are merely squatting in place, and it's quite boring. Case in point, Talk to Me Dorothy, which Michael sings to himself in a moment of desperation. He wants to figure out why he's able to be a better person when presenting as Dorothy. That's a very good question. And I was totally convinced he would have a conversation with the persona he'd created during this song. Not like in a twisted Lord of the Rings golem precious sort of way, but a casual and fun, yet ultimately revealing way. Dorothy could give him some, I don't know, old school wisdom. Set him on the right path once and for all. That sounds kind of fun, right? A duet between Michael and Dorothy? We all basically agree this has legs, I think. But that doesn't happen, and I felt robbed. Robbed! Instead, Michael ends this song right where he began, having discovered zip all nothing. You can't make me sit through this shit if absolutely nothing is going to come out of it, Yazbek. Come on already. Are you half asleep at the piano? Were you and Robert Horn having a fight? Is that why Michael has zero character development? Grab a thermos of coffee, make up with Robert, do whatever you need to do, and make this song more compelling. And then we have the final three tracks on the OBC album, which are Arrivederci, Michael's Reprise, and Thank You. And while listening to these three tracks back to back to back, it was like I was watching a beat-up truck peter out on the side of the road. Hey, look at me, using a like simile, just like good old David Yazbek. Maybe I could write for Broadway someday. Okay, no, I'm just being an asshole. But, <laughs> but yes, these final songs are... Mm, 
They're duds. They are straight up duds. None of them clock in at longer than 90 seconds. And when it's all over, you think, seriously? If any show is begging for a splashy final number, it's Tootsie. The show opens with a song called Opening Number. So why not bring its melody line back for a song called Closing Number? Dole out a final helping of the meta commentary and have the cast recite what everybody has learned. Everything is perfect. Everything's serene. Michael learned his lesson. Dorothy is our queen or something anything. I did learn there's a dance-centered curtain call, but that is not an acceptable substitute for a proper final number. Not for me, it isn't. Sorry, not sorry. That's our deconstruction of the Tootsie score, and now we're going to hand it over to our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Tootsie, how y'all doing? I'm just popping in here to tell you that the day of reckoning has arrived and I am your new overlord. And as your new overlord, I demand that you throw away your off-brand coffees. Oh, that instant stuff, get it out of here. Your fancy coffee machines, get them out of here. My name is Dorothy and I'm here to tell you that the only coffee you will be drinking in the new dynasty, the 3,000-year dynasty of Dorothy, I should say, the D.D., the door of the dynasty, the only coffee you're going to be drinking, honey, sugar, liver lips, is five, six, seven, eight coffee. Yum, yum, yum in my tum, tum, tum. Oh, you know what? I'm just going to say this right now. Uh, five, six, seven, eight coffee keeps this curvy body of mine in the shape that I like it. I need to be able to fit into my dazzling disco ball red sequin dress every single night for every single performance of my new cabaret show. You are going to see this cabaret show or die. That's the name of it. You are going to see this cabaret show or die. Every Everybody has to buy a ticket, and the tickets are expensive. Oh, honey, sugar, liver, lips, egg mouth. I'm telling you right now, if you don't come see my show, and if you do not order a cup of 5678 coffee during the performance, I will absolutely kill you. <laughs> my name is Dorothy, and I'm here to tell you, you can count on me to be your god for the next 3,000 years. And you know what else you can count on? Five, six, seven, eight, coffee, sugar. All right, see you tonight and every night for the rest of your godforsaken lives. Ooh, I'm unstoppable, baby. Transphobia. Final thoughts on Tootsie. All right, so Tootsie proves that we really need to be more selective when choosing movies to adapt for the stage. You know what show taught us that lesson? Another show that taught us that lesson, I should say? King Kong. I don't think anybody really needed King Kong to be turned into a stage musical. We cannot be putting this much time and money into productions if the results are going to be so obviously half-baked. It's insulting. The absence of a proper finale, that's what really gets to me. If you're going to make me sit through a story about a white guy who co-ops drag in order to steal what he wants, and that's what this show is about, a man who steals, at least try to ensure your songwriting is airtight and undeniably entertaining. Force me to say, well, the story is retrograde crap, but those songs, you can't deny the quality of those songs. 
You don't even care to make me say that? Fuck you. You're fired. Everybody's fired. I can't believe we're going to have to go through all of this again in 2020 when Mrs. Doubtfire the musical hits the streets. If you think I'm kidding, that shit is real. It's from the Something Rotten team. Oh, boy. And it is absolutely coming for us. It's coming for us in our fucking sleep. I won't be ready. How can I ever be ready? Now, as a reminder, in 2019, the very year that we are living in of our Lord, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was none other than Hades Town, and the other nominees this year were Beetlejuice, Ain't Too Proud, and The Prom. I'm kind of jonesing to dive into The Prom because I firmly believe it will kick Tootsie's ass in the musical comedy department, but for now at least I'm going to avoid the ire of Hades Town superfans and allow that show to keep its medallion. For now, for now, for now. You never know what may happen in the future, my musical minions. Let's rank the show, shall we? Okay, I'm gonna put Tootsie at number 28 between Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn at number 27, and School of Rock at number 29. Tootsie sitting right above School of Rock, that seems fair to me. That seems just right. Now, you may be wondering, how do I compare Tootsie to the other drag show that we've discussed on the podcast? That being the Some Like It Hot adaptation, Sugar. Well, I'll tell you this right now. Uh, At the very least, Sugar can better justify its running gag about two men dressing as women because the stakes are literally life and death in Sugar. Those two main characters in Sugar, if you'll remember, witnessed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. They have a hit on their heads, so they are in disguise. They are trying to protect their lives. It's still a dumb musical comedy, but I would honestly rather, I think, watch a production of Sugar, and I think I would feel better paying to watch a production of Sugar than I ever could paying to watch production of Tootsie. So that's all I'm going to say there. Again, as always, if you want to see our full ranking, go to our Twitter profile, Musical Man Pod, click on the pinned tweet, and you will find on the second tab of a Google Sheet, the pinned tweet will take you to a Google Sheet, and the second tab will show you everything that we've ranked so far at this point. Show-related ephemera. Okay, so Benny, the first clip that I want us to play here is a 2013 Good Morning America clip, and it's Dustin Hoffman being in interviewed regarding his experience uh, filming Tootsie, and uh, he's talking a big fucking game about how it really affected him and it made him think about, you know, gender dynamics and what we expect from women, and here's the, here's the big thing, everybody, he cries. You're, I mean, you're, I mean, you'll hear it. You'll hear the emotion in his voice because he, I mean, he's, you can tell he's emotional because he's lifting his face to the sky. He's trying to keep those tears in his skull. He gets big cry. He gets big cry is what he does. So Benny, can we, can we hear that audio? Thanks. Dustin Hoff in an interview that's gone wildly viral. The Oscar winner tears up when talking about his iconic character in the movie Tootsie and what he learned about the pressure on women to look beautiful. Our weekend anchor Dan Harris has the story. In Tootsie, Dustin Hoffman plays a down-on-his-luck actor who dresses up as a woman to land a role on a soap opera. Well, it works. But what? Don't play hard to get. The movie came out in 1982 and was a huge hit. I'd like to make her look a little more attractive. How far can you pull back? How do you feel about Cleveland? Despite all the jokes in the film about his character being more of a naughty than a hottie, Hoffman, in a newly viral and bracingly honest interview, reveals that he was initially shocked when they did screen tests to see how he looked in drag. If I was going to be a woman, I would want to be as beautiful as possible. And they said to me, that's as good as it gets. In that moment, he says, he had an epiphany. I went home and started crying, talking to my wife. 
And I said, I have to make this picture. And she said, why? And I said, when I look at myself on screen, and I know that if I met myself at a party, I would never talk to her that character because she doesn't fulfill physically the demands that we're brought up to think we have women have to have in order for us to ask them out. She says, what are you saying? And I said, there's a too many interesting women I have I have I I have not had the experience to know in this life because I have been brainwashed and that was never a comedy for me and after this extraordinary interview it may not be a comedy for the rest of us either for Good Morning America Dan Harris ABC News New York Wow. You, know, you think that back emotion. to the movie, you can see that emotion in the yeah, character, too, yeah. a lot. And another reason why we love Dustin Hoffman. Mm -hmm. That was really remarkable. Well, I'm glad we got to see that. Fantastic. Thank you, Betty. And now I'm going to read, in its entirety, we're doing a lot of reading in its entirety today, the sexual misconduct allegations section of Dustin Hoffman's Wikipedia page. That's what you came here for. I know that you did. Here's the Wikipedia section. Quote, Hoffman is one of 263 celebrities, politicians, CEOs, and others who have been accused of sexual misconduct since April 2017. In 2017, seven women accused Hoffman of sexual misconduct or assault, including Wendy Rice... Oh, and I do apologize again. Wendy Rice Gotsunas, Corey Thomas, Melissa Kester, Catherine Rose Setter, and an anonymous woman. A woman who was 17 at the time alleged that Hoffman made inappropriate jokes and comments around her and forced her to give him foot massages in New York. Hoffman's daughter's friend, who was also a minor at the time, 16, alleged the actor took a shower and came out wearing only a towel, which she said he dropped and then put on a robe and asked Thomas to massage his feet. Again with the fucking feet massages. Hoffman released an apology to the 17-year-old intern who alleged harassment, but denied wrongdoing, saying, quote, I have the utmost respect for women and feel terrible that anything I might have done could have put her in an uncomfortable situation. Continuing, I am sorry. It is not reflective of who I am. In December 2017, comedian John Oliver asked Hoffman about the allegations during the 20th anniversary screening of Wag the Dog at the 92nd Street Y to quote John Oliver, It's not reflective of who I am. It's that kind of response to this stuff that pisses me off, Oliver said. It is reflective of who you were. If you've given no evidence to show it didn't happen, then there was a period of time for a while when you were a creeper around women. It feels like a cop-out to say it wasn't me. Do you understand how that feels like a dismissal? Quote, Hoffman said that he felt blindsided by the line of questioning, remarking, You've made the case better than anyone else can. I'm guilty. Because someone has alleged something, I'm guilty. You push a button. It's all over the world. I'm a predator. I'm this and that. And it's not true. Hoffman has not publicly responded to the other six allegations. Comedian Chevy Chase... Oh, a longtime friend of Hoffman, because that's the friend you want in your corner, Chevy Chase, publicly stated that he does not believe the allegations. Well, what a fuck-all shock. To quote Chevy, quote, I knew him back then. It just didn't really happen, said Chase. He was explaining to me what they were talking about. I've known him forever, so I've never known him to be that way, groping or whatever the hell that is. 
Great quote, Chevy. Real great. You you walked right up to the fucking base and you swung your bat and you struck out. Fuck you. And then, of all people, actor Liam Neeson was widely covered by the media in January 2018 for coming to Hoffman's defense, saying that touching a woman's breasts behind the scenes of a play every night was, quote, childhood stuff. And, quote, you do silly things and it becomes kind of superstitious. If you don't do it every night, you think it's going to jinx the show. What are you talking about, Liam Neeson? Holy hell, between this and that bullshit that he was spinning a while back about how he got drunk and took to the streets trying to find a black person that he could just kill? What is wrong with these fucking people? Comedian Bill Murray, (laughs) who co-starred with Hoffman in Tootsie and The Lost City, has also defended him, saying, I heard what happened to him. (laughs) Happened to him. I heard what happened to him is what Bill says. And Dustin Hoffman is a really decent person. He's a crazy, like a borscht belt flirt. He has been his whole life, but he's a really sweet man. I heard what happened to him. Uh, Shut up. Shut the fuck up. Everybody, shut the fuck up. Normally at this point in the show, we would take a ride on the musical carousel to determine what show we discuss next week. But we have another lawyer listener. What the hell did I just say? I'll start again. Take two. But another loyal listener has posted a Miss Saigon, more like Bless Saigon, review via Apple Podcasts. And so they have earned the right to decide next week's subject. You too can, of course, do that. Go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star Miss Saigon, more like Bless Saigon review, and you can choose a show for yourself, and you will make me cover it. Ooh, I will be your little subservient, little little boy, your little pup boy. Ooh, I'm a pup boy. Pup play. That show, by the way, was a 1960 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical and ran for 702 performances on Broadway. It's Gypsy, baby, it's Gypsy. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. Listeners can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. Those who donate one dollar a month will receive weekly verbal shoutouts. Let's do that now. Thank you for donating. Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Mary. $1 a month patrons also have access to special episodes dedicated to the 73rd Annual Tony Awards and the first trailer for the forthcoming film adaptation of Cats. And coming soon, an episode dedicated to ABC's The Little Mermaid Live. Those who donate $3 a month will get everything I've mentioned, plus a special musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of their choosing. And starting in November 2019, you'll have access to the High School Musical Podcast. If you donate $5 a month, you get everything I've mentioned, the ability to stop the musical carousel and tell me what show to discuss on the podcast. Access to the first season of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, plus access to our special Broadway in Chicago series. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, you not only get everything I've already mentioned, you also get access to The Snub Club, a monthly series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Our next Snub Club episode, scheduled to drop Wednesday, October 30th, will be dedicated to Jason Robert Brown's The Bridges of Madison County. Past subjects include Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahooly, American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, Allegiance, and It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Donations go toward the purchase of cast recordings, movie rentals, and offsetting the cost of being hosted through Podbean. And if we ever get to a point where we are bringing in $100 or more in total monthly donations, I'll begin production on M3, The Movie Musical Man, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of movie musicals 
that are tied by a Kyomin theme. Go to Apple Podcasts and write up a glowing five-star review, won't you? We have 23 five-star reviews at this point, including reviews from the UK and Australia. And once we hit 30, I'll record a special episode dedicated to Disney's Descendants trilogy. Ooh, so many checks out there. Make me cash those checks. And as one final reminder, if you write that five-star Miss Saigon more like Bless Saigon review, you'll learn the ability to choose what show we discuss right here on this podcast. Pup play. Ruff, ruff. Stream the show at musicalmanpod.podby.com and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. I would love to read your thoughts and red hot takes on this week's show or any topic, so don't be shy. We did receive an email this week from Liz, aka Twitter user Cosbrarian. Here is that email. Nice profile on once this week. Thank you. I was sort of lukewarm on the movie, but I found the stage show really effective, i.e. I blabbed like a baby at the end. I like your thoughts on capturing more theatricality in some of the songs. I found that the music and performance of it was so good that it didn't feel lacking at the time, but finding more magic could definitely step it up. As always, thanks for your insistence on more from the female characters and other underrepresented or poorly represented folks. Thank you! And as someone who barely plays the piano, sometimes I think the only reason I still practice once in a while is for when this show is produced locally. This sheet music is my most played. P.S. I'm not good at it yet. Well, practice makes perfect, Liz. Practice makes perfect. And I said to you, thank you for sending that email. Thanks as always also to Benny in the booth, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. Oh, hell, you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, a Wiedersehen, and good night. <laughs>